talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and I am your social worker with a microphone on Voice America. You're listening to Voice America with Catherine Zox. We've got three guests coming up in this hour. My first guest is Wendy Aaron. Wendy is the author of Hide and Seek, and Hide and Seek is a narcissist hilarious journey. So this is what, uh, Wendy, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks. Nice to be on. Great to have you here. It's so funny because besides writing this book, you also and were a screenwriter, right? For um, uh, one of my actually one of my favorite shows, Family Ties. Yes. Yeah, I love that show, and you know I have insomnia, so I watch it all night when it's on in reruns and stuff. But anyway, Wendy has also written for the New York Times and Newsweek, uh, and now her book Hide and Seek. So, Wendy, tell us about the book. What uh, it's about you, isn't it? It's all about you. Yes, well, somebody once told me that uh, a friend actually said that they would hate to live inside my head with the thoughts that go on there. So I decided that I would put down what was going on in my head. (laughs) (laughs) So we could all read it, and also, you know, it's a fascinating book. Okay, because you describe yourself as a neurotic, depressive, ever since kindergarten on Long Island in New York. Right, right. Uh, so you always knew that you were a neurotic depressive even when you were in kindergarten. That's amazing. Yes, I used to. I wouldn't play uh, Duck, Duck, Goose. I would sit out on the side and uh, be sitting there with a very grim expression on my face while the kindergarten teachers ran around uh, clueless as what to do with me. But you were the most conscientious person in your class, as you describe yourself. So how did the most conscientious person in the class in, in kindergarten get to be this neurotic depressive well, I think um, being neurotic is like one step removed from being conscientious. I mean, if you take conscientiousness to its nth degree, you become a neurotic. And uh, always worried about what other people are thinking and what you're doing and what's going to happen if and making sure you have your assignments so on time that they're early. And um, just being a general nervous wreck. All right, being a general nervous wreck and you got to middle school and then what happened to you? You said you never, everybody was dating, you weren't dating, feeling bad about yourself, more, no, more neurotic, nervous, whatever. So what'd you do? I uh, took a picture of a boy out of a magazine and I put him in a picture locket that I had and I wore it to school and I told everyone that he was my boyfriend from California. And um, so everyone thought I had a very cute looking boyfriend from California and actually he was like a figment of my imagination. So here you are. Now a storyteller is born. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right. Now you graduated from where? You went to, I know where you graduated from, but uh, college, Brandeis University, Adelphi University, but where else? Um, that was it. I went to Brandeis for two years, and then I had a depressive episode, so I came back to New York where I'm from, from to be treated. And then I finished up college at Adelphi, which is a school on Long Island, New York. And then I went out to film school at UCLA, and I stayed there for, I stayed in L.A. for about nine years. So what made you decide to write the book? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, because it's really kind of, to me, it would seem scary. Here you are, neurotic, 
and depressed, and actually, weren't you in, were you institutionalized? Yes, I was in college. So that must have been a pretty scary thing in college. To, you know, how long were you in, you were in a, um, a psychiatric hospital for some right, period of time? Right, right. Yeah. I was there for a month, and um, yeah, I was so naive at the time when they told me I had to be hospitalized, I thought I would have to wear a white gown and give urine samples. I, I had no idea what kind of hospital I was going to and why they would, they would want to have me in a hospital. So um, it was just definitely a very big shock to my system. But uh, once I got used to it, I really enjoyed my time there. I had uh, It was like being in camp. I had basketball. I had arts and crafts. I was I one of the social workers, workers, by the way, in, in those hospitals, so maybe we met. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> the ones trying to put you in a white gown and get the urine samples. But anyway, so it wasn't so bad. No, it wasn't so bad. But, I heard it's bad now because of insurance that they don't let people stay in for the lengthy stay I had there. You know, they get people in and out very quickly. But still, I mean, you must have been in a lot of pain to be, you know, because we want to, you know, you wrote the book. I'm sure this is going to be an inspirational book in the end. It is an inspirational book for other people who suffer from depression, you know, all of the things that you suffered from. But there's, there's a whole kind of light side to it, which you bring to the story. Uplifting, I guess, is the word. Right. Well, I think a lot of depressed people are pretty funny, and they, you know, even comedians, you think of, like, George Carlin was very depressed, and so was Rodney Dangerfield, and the comedians that are out now, like Richard Lewis, is very depressed. We just have, a, I guess, an aptitude for seeing the humor in what terrible situations that we encounter. And I'm just hoping that the book serves as an inspiration for people that are going through some of the same things I went through. So why hide-and-seek? Why would you call it hide-and-seek? Well, because I'm sort of hiding from the world, but then I spend a year out seeking to, um, you know, increase my self-esteem and take risks to meet new people, and so I'm going out into the world after all. So it's an, would you call, I, I would say your book is, is, is really is inspirational, but not only for people who are depressed or who go through, who have gone through what you've gone through and you do it with humor, but also don't you think for, for families, because it's really scary when somebody in their family gets, you know, is depressed or um, has to seek psychiatric help, and I think family members feel out of control. So you add an air of, of humor to all of this and hope. Yeah, it was, you know, it was very difficult for my family because they had, they had never experienced this before, obviously. I have two older brothers, and um, neither one of them had psychiatric illness, so it was a big shock to their system. But um, they, they came through it okay. They were very supportive in the end, you know, getting me the help I needed. What about the stigma? Because uh, this also helps. I mean, we talk about it's, you know, it's 2000 and what is this, two, almost 2009, but there's still stigma attached to mental illness, regardless. You know, even though we've done a lot to make changes and get things out in the open, and, of course, your book is one of them. But still, don't you think there are, and there's a lot of uh, kind of judgment in, in terms of um, blaming the victim still and all that kind of stuff when you're mentally ill, just get a grip, get a hold of yourself kind of um, attitude. Yeah, I was I was afraid about that when I wrote the book. I was telling people for the first time that I had been hospitalized. Many people, like uh, acquaintances and family members, who didn't know. So I was definitely worried about that. But I was, you know, I thought they would think I was crazy because I had been hospitalized. But they didn't think I was crazy. They they think I'm just like them. But I have the guts to talk about it. Yeah, well, that's so true. I think that um, everyone has their own problems, and uh, some people just choose not to express them to other people, but everyone either knows somebody or if they're not touched by mental illness themselves, they know somebody who is, and uh, they, so they can relate to it. Yeah. Well, 
your story um, ends well, obviously, and you're very talented. I mean, besides that, I mean, you're a screenwriter, and, and you know, you, you're a prolific writer, uh, and you find, and, and you are married. You have a partner. Talk to us about that. So, was that how did you meet your husband? Uh, well, we were introduced by uh, family members, and that came about actually after I finished writing this book. So that's not. Uh, it's actually not even really covered in the book. My marriage. Um, but that's the, another book. You can write the marriage. <laughs> that could be a that's topic. The sec- that's the second book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, can we talk about the marriage, even if it's not in the book? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I got married uh, for the first time, actually, when I was uh, 43 years old. So that should be inspiration to a lot of women out there that who are older, that it's still possible to find the right one. And my husband's very supportive and very sympathetic and, uh, He's not uh, worried or afraid. Uh, you know, he doesn't get scared off by the whole specter of mental illness because he knows me and he loves me and I love him, and so it's a very good marriage. How old is your husband? He's um, 52 and I'm 47. All right, well, that's a good combination. So he's not, he wasn't turned off by the fact, Wendy, that you had suffered from mental illness, that you had been in an institution. At what point do you tell him? You know, I have a friend who's in a similar situation. Like, when do you tell that person that, you know, I do suffer from depression or, and, I have been, and I have been treated both in and out of a facility? When does that come up in the conversation? Um, well, it came up, I, I don't know, I would say like uh, six months into the relationship when I felt more secure about it. And um, he knew, you know, he had known that I had some problems because we were we were introduced by family members, and I guess they had alluded to it at some point. But uh, he said, you know, it didn't bother him at all. He didn't mind at all. So that's great. I mean, ma- I mean, married after your fortieth birthday, because I think many women feel desperate when they get to that point. And they're afraid, even when they get to 30, and if they're not married yet, um, even though we talk also about singlehood and it's great and women can, you know, don't necessarily have to get married, but there's always that kind of like, I think that pull that, you know, I, if I don't get married, I'm not going to be able to, I'm still, you're not an old maid, but I still haven't accomplished what I need to accomplish. I mean, did you feel that way? Uh, Yeah, partially, but I was always very career focused and I was very into my writing, so I didn't really feel that an emptiness, you know, missing, that something was missing in my life, you know, and I just, um, I mean, I wanted to be in a relationship, and I dated a lot of men, and I had actually been engaged once when I was in my 30s, but we broke that off. So, I don't know, the years just go by so fast, you don't even realize how old you are after a while. I realize how old I am because I am older than you. I am very much aware of how old I am. You're very young, um, and it, which is a good thing. But uh, all right, so what? What else should we learn from this book? Because it's a it's a great book. I think you've done a great service to to um, to a lot of people, but especially with this whole topic of mental illness. Because I, I really do think this is um, kind of a courageous book to write. It is uplifting and it talks about your self acceptance accepting yourself and that took that's that's a kind of a lifetime uh, yeah. um, journey I would say wouldn't you yes definitely I would say that it's you have to be ever vigilant when you're depressed that you know you it doesn't come back to bite you um, but I think it's you know I think the main thing is that people should take away from the book is that it's it's okay to tell people that you don't feel well and that you're ill and that you have depression and it's not your fault and you can go out and seek treatment for it and take classes to improve yourself and just learn from different people and take social risks 
anything that you think you can do to make yourself feel better about yourself. That is so important. I, I, I think, Wendy, that's a really important point because I know a lot of people, unfortunately, who ha- suffer from depression, family and friends, and one of the problems is they don't want to talk about it, so it takes a lot of energy to cover up. First of all, it takes a lot of energy while to, to going through a depression and then to try and cover up and pretend to other people that you're okay right. is really even more, is so debilitating. So I think what you say is really key. Get it out. It's okay. Right, People, right, yeah. definitely. Yeah, to, to family and to friends. And uh, now we can buy the, you go to, first of all, your website um, is wendyaron.com. So you can go yeah. to Wendy's website, um, and there's lots of, there's information about the book, about you. And it's blog. one A in Aaron, just A-R-O-N. A-R-O-N. Wendy. A-R- yeah. So, um, yeah, and there's a blog, there's news, there's all that stuff. So if you want to buy the book, you can buy it online and uh, bookstores everywhere. Yes. Great. Well, we have to say goodbye. We only have a few seconds left. Great book. Thanks so much for talking about it today on the show. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. Wendy Aaron, Hide and Seek. You're listening to Catherine Zox on Voice America. I'm your social worker with a microphone. Coming up next in this hour is Melissa K. Dean, author of High Gorgeous. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. I have three children, and I've been raising my 16-year-old sister. Mary Gallagher and her family shared a two-bedroom apartment with eight people. Now Habitat for Humanity is helping her build a simple, decent, affordable home of her own. When we first found out that we were getting a Habitat home, it was like a dream. I kept saying, don't anybody wake me up. Not only is Mary helping build her own home, she'll buy it with a no-profit, zero-interest mortgage to keep it affordable. Habitat came out and built my home. And when Mary started building her house, I wanted to come out and give a hand. We're not just building Mary's house, we're building a neighborhood. There's several more to be built this year, and I look forward to working on each of their houses and seeing the joy of their face when they open the door to their brighter future. Habitat for Humanity. Building homes, changing lives. Support the work in your community. Visit Habitat.org. I feel very blessed. God has answered all of my prayers. We are home. Hey, how you doing? Educational videos, top quality, right here. You'll never hear anyone selling education on the street. But with free family learning programs, you can get the education you need. Call 1-877-FAMLIT-1 for information on free learning programs. 1-877-FAMLIT-1. Check it out, check it out. Your GED right here, guaranteed, ma. Come on, check it out. Free family learning programs from the National Center for Family Literacy. Brought to you by the National Center for Family Literacy and the Ad Council. Have you ever thought about having your own internet talk show? Well, if you said yes, then click About Us. Then click Be a Host to get more information. Or just call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Say that again? 480-294-6417. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Hi, good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. Welcome back to The Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with a microphone here on Voice America. And uh, our second guest on the show today is Melissa K. Dean. She's author of High Gorgeous. Actually, she is gorgeous. She's an attorney, a public educator in Cleveland, Ohio, and a lifelong champion for women and families at risk. She has worked as an advocate for domestic violence survivors and as a juvenile court magistrate. And she has quite a story to tell us. This is what her book is all about, High Gorgeous. Um, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Melissa. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, you have quite a story. This is like an amazing story and uh, somewhat unbelievable, I have to say, because here you are. You are an attorney, extremely bright, uh, very accomplished, and what happened to you? I mean, let's, you know, you start out, I mean, this is what this book is all about, but um, you ended up being an abused woman. Um, so talk to us, you know, about the book, which obviously is, is a, a narration of what happened to you. Um, what a story. Yes. Uh, tr- well, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. And my experience is the best truth that I know to convey to people. Hi, gorgeous. Those are the two words that began my true life story into the world of online dating fraud and the emotionally abusive marriage that resulted from that. Those are the words that, with which my former husband began his first email to me, and they launched our dysfunctional history. Right, so you were in your 30s. Let's kind of backtrack a little. Here you are, gorgeous attorney. You weren't married. You were wanted as I understand it, to be respected for your sex appeal, but also for your brains. You wanted both. You have both qualities. And you decide to go to an online dating site in your 30s. And uh, this is the first time you've ever done this? That's correct. That's correct. In my mid-30s, yeah, I felt I had a a lot going for me. And I was working as a magistrate for the juvenile court at that time. But there was an area of my life that I was dissatisfied with, and that was the one-on-one interaction that I had experienced with the opposite sex. And I perceived dating websites at that time to be a good opportunity to handpick potential mates from all these different profiles with pictures and people's cards laid out on the table. But little did I understand at that time, it was the very security of the computer screen that uh, let people handpick mates. It was also served as a security screen for my former husband, as well as other con artists, to claim that there's something that they're not. And in my instance, my ex claimed he was a, uh, a Navy veteran, a uh, former SEAL. He was only married once before, which was a lie. He was married twice before me. I didn't find that out until much later. Uh, and we had been, we chatted online for approximately a couple weeks before we started uh, gravitating to the phone phone communication, and then a couple weeks following, we met for our first one-on-one lunch date. 
So, Melissa, when you met him for the first time, you had all this information, right? Or you thought you had the right kind As of I information. Thought, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but once you meet him, okay, because we're saying, you know, he said he was married once, he was married twice, all kinds of stuff. He, was, he said he was a Navy SEAL. Was he a Navy SEAL? No, uh, unfortunately, uh, Catherine, he was not. The closest he ever got to military service was uh, watching Black Hawk Down on TV. Uh, that was a totally fabricated aspect of his history that never existed for him. And the uh, one of the bitter, most bitter ironies about that, and not only is it a, a grand insult to the men and women who really do serve, but the abusive tendencies that later emerged in our marriage he used the phony military background to justify those tendencies, the combat stress and all that. So you meet this guy online, though, but then you do have the opportunity, and you talk to him on the phone, and you kind of did it the mm-hmm. right way, online, phone, and then you meet him in person. But when you met him in person, Melissa, were there any red lights that went, I mean, you, that went on in your mind? You ended up being an abused woman, a horrible, horrible story. But was there anything there when you were talking to him or having drinks, eating whatever you did on dating that said, hey, wait a minute, there's something that doesn't quite fit here or not? No no signs. He, he didn't really raise uh, any red flags at our, our first luncheon. And, and for the bulk of our courtship, I did not see anything that was extremely problematic. Uh, he was consistent with a story that he had told me online. And what I didn't know, and granted, by the way, we did live an hour away from each other during our courtship, and that uh, geographical distance gave him uh, enough leeway to conduct a lot of his deception and lead a double life. For example, he was actually dating his girl, another girlfriend and continued their relationship up through the first couple weeks of our marriage. So he had these two things, these two dating two right. women, maybe right. more than two. Who knows, yes, right? I, I would venture to say, and, and lots of these things, you know, no, they didn't gravitate to red flags, and there were so many things that I really had no way of knowing at that point in time. The lies that uh, I was told at that point didn't really start to emerge until much, much later, most of which uh, came out after we split. Now, um my what about, I have to ask you, what about family? Like, did you meet his, any, I don't know if he has parents or siblings or, like, friends. Did you meet any of them? Did you get any clues from people that he hung out with or that he was related to? His mom has, uh, is uh, passed on, uh, so unfortunately, so I never got the chance to meet her. His father does live in his area, but uh, because of some of the I don't know, activities he was involved in. I, I never really got a chance to meet his father, but I met several other members of his family. Uh, dear aunt of his, I met his two children. He was a single uh, divorced father. I met uh, two children whom he had over a couple nights a week, and I thought that all seemed pretty normal. Now, we went at one point in our courtship. We met my parents for dinner. That was their first meeting. My mother did have some bad vibes from him. and didn't quite get a, a good feeling. You know, that maternal instinct was uh, coming out, but uh, she was hesitant to say something to me uh, for fear of alienating me from her. Yeah, it's tough for mothers because especially since you were in your 30s, it's not as if you were a kid. You weren't 20 years old. So uh, as a mom, and I, and I am a mom of, of, uh, of children in their 20s, you know, you 
you might feel something, but they're adults. What are you going to say unless it's right. just so blatant? So how long did you know each other or how long before you actually got married? You went off to a loss. Vegas. You got married in Vegas. That's so right. That's correct. Right. And when we uh, did go to Las Vegas, we ensured that my parents were, uh, we flew my parents out to uh, see the wedding with us. Now, however, we da- we've dated for only six months before getting married. That is a short time period to most people who are probably listening. However, at that point, remember, I had grown up in a household where my parents have been married for you know, over 40 years, and they only dated for a month before my father asked her to elope with him. So I grew up with a role model, in other words, of seeing a short courtship marriage work out just fine. You know, so when we got hitched after six months, it didn't seem like a big problem to me. And I think also, again, going back to the age, uh, Melissa, at 30s, you kind of you would think that after six months you do get, you've had a lot of, you've had experience. I mean, you've had experience dating, you've been with other men, so perhaps your judgment is better, although I guess it wasn't. <laughs> but it could have been. Uh, you should, uh, you know, bet, maybe you had more experience, more wisdom than, say, a 25-year-old, but still. Okay, so six months you got married, and then what? And I have to say the second part, I didn't say the second part of the title because it's High Gorgeous, Starry Eyes, and Toxic Lies. And we're talking to Melissa Dean, High Gorgeous, author of Starry Eyes and Toxic Lies, which is a story about her marriage, her abusive marriage. Um, um, so you get married, you're in Las Vegas, Melissa, and then where do you go back to where you both lived? How, what happened in terms of where you ended up living after when you first uh, got married? I moved into his home, uh, which was, as I said, an hour away from my original apartment where I lived during our courtship. About a couple weeks after our ceremony, the truth of his situation slowly started to emerge with some things. We started to get mailings from the IRS, and it became apparent that he was a couple months behind on some very basic bills, but he did not disclose that to me uh, before our marriage. Uh, So... You know, we were, uh, I was walking into a situation which was like a financial black hole that he had not told me anything about. And as time went on, uh, the emotional abuse slowly started to begin. And so it was insidious. I mean, I'm listening because I, I listen, you know, I mean, this whole issue of abuse and domestic violence, unfortunately, is so real and so prevalent. And I think a lot of women don't, in some way, there's a lot of denial associated with it. Oh, that's and true. Yeah. True. Especially with emotional abuse. And our marriage wasn't really characterized by physical abuse as much as emotional and uh, some sexual abuse, unfortunately. Uh, I was shoved uh, about twice in, during our entire marriage. Uh, it was involved a couple of situations where... My former husband shoved me out of the way as he was walking through a room. Now, it's almost as if I was an impediment to where he was going, you know. Still very, very disrespectful behaviors, but the bulk of the abuse was more emotional in nature, and like any form of abuse, it began very slowly. The beginning of our marriage was characterized by the same types of flattery and respect that he displayed during our courtship. So things started on a very nice level, and slowly it began to um, grow into uh, little 
suggestions where he wanted to change some aspect of my appearance, like, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Oh, it looks so nice on you. He was slowly trying to change my appearance to suit his desires. Control. It all had to do with control. Correct. Yes. That's how it got started. And he also flattered my appearance to the extent he said, oh, have you ever thought about modeling? And that's how he initially got me involved in um, a a motorcycle-oriented swimsuit website that he started. And I had never, no, it was clear I had never considered modeling, but with his flattery initially, it made it seem like, you know what, this is a fun way to express the uh, playful, sexy side of my personality and balance out that intellectual legal part of my psyche. So it's amazing how you, and we're going to take a short break, we have to take, we only got a few seconds left, but how he kind of engages you in that way, that flattery and then control and back and forth with it, like you say, beautiful woman kind of juxtaposing that with, you know, brilliant attorney and and, uh, just kind of takes you into the web, it sounds like almost. It's, um, It's quite a story. Anyway, don't go away. We're going to be back with Melissa K. Dean. She's author of High Gorgeous, Starry Eyes, and Toxic Lies. You're listening to Voice America with Catherine Zox. We'll be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just... Don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Hi, we're back. We're back with uh, Melissa K. Dean. She's author of High Gorgeous, Starry Eyes, and Toxic Lies. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on Voice America. So if you're just joining us, Melissa has been telling us this incredible story. She, uh, this is what her book is all about, her life, her experience as an abused woman. And uh, actually, the man that she ended up marrying, she found him on an online dating, um, on an online dating, what would you call it, on the net, on an online Yeah, it was an internet dating site. Yeah, online dating site and uh, full of lies and uh, half-truths and ended up marrying him. And now we've been talking about really like the insidious nature of, of um, the relationship in an, abused, in an abused relationship, whether you're married or not. And it's fascinating because I think sometimes people, especially women, think it, it happens all at once, like you'd recognize it and what's wrong with you, don't you? And, and kind of blaming the victim kind of thing. 
Yes, yes, and that, that's a big problem with emotional abuse especially. And to add just another aspect of irony, I believe you mentioned this as part of my work experience that I had served at one point as an advocate for a domestic violence shelter. So I had uh, helped out a lot of women in this situation, but as it was slowly, slowly growing, even I did not take emotional abuse seriously, and I think that is problematic in our culture in general. Many people don't take it seriously. But what happens with emotional... They don't take it seriously. Women don't take it seriously. No. Because if yeah. they don't get hit, they figure, well, I'm not really being abused, and then they rationalize it. Well, he didn't... Uh, there's a lot of rationalization. You know, you said he... Before we took the break, you said, well, he pushed me twice. Well, you know, that's a... That, think about it. You know, he pushed you, he shoved you, he dismissed you, but you... He's in a bad mood. It was my fault. All of those kinds of things, I think, come up don't to, to rationalize the situation. Yeah, they do. And in in retrospect, you know, the emotional abuse within, I would say about by midway through our marriage, the emotional abuse was almost in full swing. Now, mind you, our length of our marriage was three years. So about midway into it, I was at the point where it was starting the... Uh, uh, accusations were also beginning, uh, insecurity, invasions of my privacy, uh, verbal abuse disguised as jokes. That's a big thing that I think uh, a lot of women go through and they don't call their mate on the carpet. Ridiculing you in front of other people? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, mostly it was behind closed doors. Uh, there's only a couple times where he let his behavior towards me show in public. He was intelligent enough not to do that in public. But in pretty short order, I was also uh, getting name-calling. I was called the C-word at one point. And again, this did not all happen at once. I mean, even animal cruelty reared its head in our marriage. And that served as one of the final last straws that made me realize that uh, something had to give. This was seriously wrong, unhealthy, I had to get out of there. I, I witnessed. So it took him, and I'm going to say what it was. You're talking animal cr- cruelty. This is horrific. Yes. And Jack was your husband's name, your ex-husband's name. Jack killed one of the family's, one of your pet cats with his that's bare correct. hands. Um, that's pretty scary stuff. Yes, and and it occurred in front of uh, his nine-year-old daughter, my stepdaughter at that time, and you know the sights and sounds of something like that are so horrific that they, there's not, even to this day, there's not a day that goes by that something doesn't happen where I remember part of it, or, because I have a pet cat right now, and sometimes, you know, maybe the way he'll play or jump around or hop, you know, reminds me of something that that, uh, the uh, other cat did. So, Melissa, this was a downward spiral, obviously, Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of, I, I, just going through the whatever you're doing, you're just kind of accepting it as it goes along, as it gets worse and worse. And he's verbally abusing you, um, what, criticizing your body, and then you talked about all those financial troubles. What happened? I assume that he probably blamed them on you. Yes, at some point he, he ended up doing that. Um, he always found ways to transfer responsibility for his choices onto the women in his life. And also another part, too, as our marriage grew on, his criticism of uh, his former wife got worse and worse, and I could see how he criticized her for not bending to his will, like when it came time for uh, 
the visitation exchanges or something of that nature. And I, I watched that starting to happen, too, even as his temperament towards me was getting worse. But that's so a pattern you for him. and his ex-wife became the target of his rage, blaming everything on either one of you for whatever went wrong in his Correct. life. Correct. Any woman who held him accountable, either held him accountable for his behavior or would not bend to his will, was put in that category of bad, mean, evil women. So now you're at the point... I'm assuming after he killed the cat and he's blaming you for for everything that goes wrong in his life, uh, toxic marriage to say the least, do you, are you thinking in your mind, how am I going to get out of this, what am I going to do, does he threaten you or what? That's exactly what I began doing, trying to figure out how I would go about uh, getting myself out. But before I knew that I could, I had to start uh, talking with people and enlisting their assistance because I couldn't do everything on my own, especially since it was going to have to happen in some degree of secrecy because there was another precipitating incident following the, uh, the our cat's death about maybe a month or two months after that that we had a, our last major confrontation involving the uh, email. He got into my email account, became quit, you know, started giving me the third degree about, you know, people I was emailing this and a particular old colleague I was in touch with. Uh, that confrontation gravitated into an incident of sexual abuse, and he also threatened my life that evening. Now, that was it. Life, did that he was have it. a weapon? Did he have a weapon, any kind of a weapon that he threatened to use, or just he was going to, I mean, he... He was, yeah, he was going to, he did threaten in general terms to kill me, however... He also possessed a well, uh, well-filled gun cabinet too. So, and and it, it, equipped with a silencer, I might add. So, which is not an item really one is supposed to own under federal law. So, so as we're listening to your story, and I'm thinking, maybe you don't want to tell the whole story. We want uh, you know listeners go out and, and and buy the book, and but it's like uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, Melissa, is like how here you are, this very smart person, and I'm kind of going back to the beginning of your story, like how did you get into this? How does a woman like yourself get into it? Because oftentimes we think of abused women, and this is as women who have low feelings of self-esteem, perhaps they're not well-educated, they don't have choices in their lives, maybe don't have good jobs, and so one understands that they become dependent on a man and they allow this to happen, but it doesn't seem that you're that kind of a person. No, I wasn't, uh, and I was I'm very academically intelligent. Lots of times, however, too, women who operate, I was just discussing this with someone last night, women who are uh, academically bright you know, or who are used to operating in that that realm of intellect and books don't often get a lot of experience developing their uh, gut or the street smarts that are necessary in realm of everyday life. And Good point. So that the high, that the cognitive. I'm interrupting you. I want you to go back to it. But so they don't confuse the emotional smarts with the with the with the brain smarts because they're two entirely different things. Is what you're saying? Correct. That's correct. And. Also, I think my the background that I had with growing up, I grew up with such a positive role model for a marriage. My parents treat each other like gold. Uh, as a, you know, they're still they still walk around the grocery store holding hands for heaven's sake. And I grew up watching them, uh, you know, handle conflicts, 
in a healthy manner, you know, and I, I grew up with seeing that. And, you know, that kind of gave me a naivete, sort of, and that made almost made me think, well, you know what, probably that that's how most people behave. Everybody treats everybody nice, and, you know, we're just, you know, all shiny, happy people holding hands kind of thing. But people are out there who have an agenda. Many are men, some are women, and that's the important thing that I think folks have to watch out, whether they're online dating or whether they're just, you know, meeting somebody in a bar or a library. That's a good lesson, and I think uh, we've got just a couple minutes left, but I kind of want to leave it with that because I think that's what your book does. It, uh, you, you know, you describe a new book, and uh, you, as you talk about it on your website, you know, you free yourself from your own madness, you reclaim your own mental and physical health, and, uh, and in the book you help other women, and I think you really do uh, with interviews like this and in your book, avoid the, the pitfalls of, um, of these uh, con artists who are out there. That's true. That's that's what it's about for me, trying to turn a negative experience into something positive. And one of the main things that it's important for people to understand is that regardless of, you know, age, race, or education level, fraud, abuse can happen to virtually anybody. And it's extremely important, especially for women, to take your time and pay attention to your instincts. Yeah, and don't get fooled. Great having you on the show, and it, it is a good lesson. And uh, listeners can go to your website, which is uh, which uh, give them the, the the site so that they can uh, Melissa K. Dean. Hi, it's, Gord. Uh, you go ahead. Yes, it's available on Amazon as well as BarnesandNoble.com, dot com too. Uh, listeners are welcome to go to my uh, distributor's website too and look up me as an author. Uh, they get a lot of information there uh, on the book itself, but easily available on Amazon. Terrific. Thanks so much for sharing your story today. Melissa K. Dean, author of High Gorgeous, Starry Eyes, and Toxic Lives. Have a great day. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to Voice America. Don't go away. We'll be back in a few minutes. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Did you know your child's asthma attacks can be triggered by things like shower curtains, a blanket, even a teddy bear? I feel like I'm choking. And there are many other things in your home and your child's classroom you may not know about. For the latest information, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. Help prevent your child's asthma attacks and avoid the emergency room. Call toll-free 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Or visit www.noattacks.org. I don't want to feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. 
It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle me. It's pretty me. scary, Ryan, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to I'm get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Hi, welcome back to The Catherine Zox Show. I am Catherine Zox, and you're listening to Voice America. Um, we have our last guest on the show. This is really exciting because uh, Miss America is here. Miss America... Uh, 2008, Kirsten Hagland is extremely passionate about the importance of leading a healthy lifestyle, as most of us are. And she continues to promote this message by sharing new information about a unique contest, the Search for Teen Wellness Leadership. And you can go to inspirewellness.com for more information, which is sponsored by Amway Global. Now, Amway Global is searching for teens across the United States who are taking action and leading the effort to promote wellness among their peers and community. Great work. And there's a contest out there which Miss America, Kirsten Hagland, is going to tell us about today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Kirsten. Hi. Thank you. Well, you are, you know, you're the picture of health besides being gorgeous, but also healthy at the same time, which is really important for our youth. So tell us, what is this all about? What's the contest about? Inspiring wellness, what are you doing? Yeah, um, I've been extremely um, active and, and, you know, very passionate personally about health issues um, for my entire life, but really uh, focusing this year on promoting health and wellness um, as my personal platform is raising awareness of eating disorders. So I've been on a year-long campaign to kind of talk about this issue, talk about all issues, and encourage people to better health and wellness. So um, so I was really excited to get involved. And uh, what it is really is a search for teen wellness leaders, and we just want to recognize teenagers, young people who are doing the right thing, who are staying active, who are modeling a healthy lifestyle themselves, and and really encouraging other people to do the same, And um, whether it's getting involved in their communities, creating programs for other people to stay fit, um, we've really just got a lot of great nominations so far, and we want to reward people. So um, we're doing we're doing this search, and you can go on to inspirewellness.com and nominate a teen, nominate someone in your area, and we'll choose a teen to represent each state. And if the teen is chosen to represent their state, then they'll get $1,000 in scholarship, um, $1,000 donated to their local YMCA, and a mention in Newsweek magazine. So it's a really great opportunity. Oh, that's an exciting project. I love it. So, tell us about these teens. Now, you say you've already have some that you've uh, that are, that you've recognized so far, 
But uh, like, what kinds of things are they doing? I mean, what you know? I think it's a wonderful idea to have them as really uh, mentors, I guess, to these other teens, as uh, that other teens can look up to. So, what are some of these teenagers doing to maintain their health and and uh, and their um, Right. Well, some things well, we've already um, seen yeah. some kids that, you know, we haven't, not, we'll accept nominations until um, December 1st. So there's still time. But um, some neat things, just some examples. Uh, there's this one girl who, um, she was active herself, but uh, there were a lot of disabled kids in her community. So what she did was she um, spoke at some Rotary Clubs, some Lions Clubs, wrote some letters to some organizations and got grants um, and got people on board financially to start building a playground in her area for disabled children, for children with special needs, um, so that they, too, could get out and get active and stay fit and be outside in, in a way that was special and, you know, to their needs. So that's just um, a really cool idea. Also, another kid heard about this young guy who was really into fencing, and there was no fencing program at his school, so he just decided to start one up himself. He wanted to get other kids involved in fencing. That was his love and realized, you know, there weren't a lot of people doing that at his school, so he decided to create his own program, you know, just by getting out there and doing it. So I think those are some really cool stories and just some examples of ways kids have been able to get out there and inspire others. Yeah, they're incredibly creative. It's amazing the kids at that age. I mean, it always surprises me. I don't know why, but I mean, doing great stuff at that age, being creative, you know, working with kids with disabilities, helping people to become healthy and exercise. And what what are some of the statistics? I mean, what are some of that you mentioned? Well, these two in particular had challenges, but what are some of the overall challenges for young people in terms of maintaining their health? What is what what gets in the way? You know, I look at some of these kids, and I'm sure you've you've been all over the country. They're so heavy and overweight and obesity is a problem as well as anorexia but there's no balance there I guess but yeah. what what is it that keeps them from being able to be healthy or how do they define it? Well I think what's so hard is that a lot of kids A feel like they don't have the time but it's just because um, they feel like they're not already you know they're already doing so many things that can be active and that can have an active component um, and they're just finding a way to do that um, and then also it's making sure that there's a balance um, they really do have the time. It's just you have to balance the time on the Internet, the time spent in front of the TV, the time spent playing video games. You can do those things. It's just finding a balance and making sure if you're going to spend that much time doing that, then make sure you spend that much amount of time doing something else active, walking, um, you know, some, something else that you love. Uh, and I also encourage children or, you know, adolescents when I talk to them, find something that you really love doing and then do it actively, um, you know, so that they don't feel like they just have to spend 30 minutes on a treadmill three times a week in order to feel active, you know what I mean? That is great advice, Chris, and I think it's great advice for everyone, teenagers as well as uh, adults and, and seniors and everybody. Find something you like to do so that you're not, as you say, dragging yourself to the gym when you don't want to be there because then you're not going to do it. As you say, get out, walk, do what you like to do, fence, whatever it is that you like to do. But what about, I want to ask you this one, but what about food? Do you find that you know, teenagers are eating like, that, you know, not eating well, is that part of the problem? Uh, or that is a huge part of the problem, and it's not that they're, uh, it's just they're eating what's available. They're eating what's there, and um, I think uh, we just, we haven't paid enough attention in this country to foods that are provided to young people. It's just on whatever's cheap, but um, I think we need to stop thinking about it in terms of what's cheap. We need to start thinking about long-term health care costs if we don't 
um, make the right foods available. So it's educating not only young people about foods that are healthy and things that are good for their body, good to put in their body, but it's also educating the people who are in charge of putting those foods or making those foods available to young people to realize if you're going to pay a cost, this is a cost to pay making the right foods available so that our young people can live healthy, productive lives and don't have to pay for, um, you know, surmounting health costs, health care costs in the future. You're so right, because it is a two-pronged approach. I remember when my kids are in school and, we, you know, they have this PTA or whatever it was for the sports events and they wanted mothers to cook or bake or make something, and we'd bake all these chocolate stuff that really wasn't good for them. And I used to think, shouldn't we be bringing cheese and fruits and good kind of stuff? And I think eventually they have begun to change that. I know at the high school where my kids went to, but, you know, 15, 10 years ago, they, they were, you know, we were providing the bad stuff for them. And as you say, parents have to do it, too. They have to be on the bandwagon for this health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so tell us more, because, I, I, you know, listeners are going to want to know, they're going to, you know, hang uh, get off the sh- you know stop listening to the show and they want to go to the website and find out what they can do and how they can uh, what are the rules I think we mentioned it in the beginning but let's just kind of wind up with uh, uh, what are the rules of of uh, winning the prize and uh, picking out these teenagers who are going to inspire wellness. Yep, it's just you go on to inspirewellness.com, nominate a teen who has been active in their community who has inspired other people to stay fit. Um, who is a model of fitness or um, a healthy lifestyle themselves, go online to inspirewellness.com, nominate them. We'll choose a winner from each state. And it's really easy. All you have to do is click on the graphic at the bottom of the home page that says nominate a teen and go on there and fill out their name and their location and a little bit about themselves. And it's, uh, it's really easy. But we really just want to make sure that teens in our communities get recognized for the good things that they're doing because there are so many that are doing good things. And we want to make a reward. We want to make the rewards of their lifestyle choices tangible for them. So go on to inspirewellness.com. And I wanted to get inspired, so I did go to the website, and it's a great website. You are right. And they actually they have a quiz. Tell us a little bit about yourself, which I, I started to do, and I'm going to finish it when I, when I, when I finish the show. But uh, it gives you a little bit of information about how you know, what, you're, what you do to keep yourself healthy. So you could, there's actually a quiz there that you can take. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a quiz about yourself. You can, um, and and also there's a really neat um, survey that Amway Global did of the entire United States on where where the whole country stands in so far as the exercise they get and um, their exercise habits, obesity uh, rates, obviously the issue of um, overweight children. It just gives a lot of really interesting statistics on where we stand in this country. So it's really eye opening. It really um, serves as good inspiration. Yeah, that's true, and uh, yeah, we need the statistics. Uh, one of the, uh, I have one in front of me, about 93% of Americans report attempting to make everyday choices to be healthy and live well, but only about and 47% struggle to do so. So, you know, half of them are still struggling, and they're not able to do so, um, which is a lot of people. Um, and they, as you and I talked about, the two main barriers to living a healthier lifestyle are, as they say, lack of time, 39% of the people say that, and Another thing they mentioned, we only have a minute left, so maybe I shouldn't bring this up, but with the rising cost of food, I don't know if that's an issue or not, and with this downturn in this economy, I hope it doesn't become a problem, but uh, 39% mentioned that as a problem in terms of not eating the right kinds of food. Right, and it's just a matter of making then making the things that you do pay for, making health and nutrition a priority, because we all have costs, there's lots of costs in our lives, and so we have to prioritize financially, and that's one thing that we really 
we really can't afford to put at the bottom of our list. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And we got 30 seconds left. We're going to say goodbye to Kirsten Hagelin. She's Miss America 2008, doing great stuff. Go to the website, inspirewellness.com. Uh, Miss America and Amway search for state teen wellness leaders. So maybe you may be one of them. Have a great, great holiday. All right. Thanks. You too. Thank you, Kirsten. You've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show on Voice America. We're going to say goodbye. Have a great uh, day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversation with Catherine Zox.